Good morning. Thanks for being here. We appreciate your presence very much. We've got a good crowd, and we're glad you're here to be with us. We've been studying about David's life, and we've, we've got a series that we've been studying called A Man After God's Own Heart. Or becoming a man after God's own heart. And we've talked about the shepherd boy. We've talked about the boy king. We've talked about his uh, great battle against the giant of Goliath and facing our giants. And today we're going to talk about the highs and the lows. So if you, um, if you remember kind of what's gone on with David so far, it, uh, got a picture of a wrestling team up there and you've got, you remember the ABC Wild World of Sports, I'm dating myself, most people will go no in this audience because you're younger, but there used to be this show on, cha on ABC Channel 8 called the Wild World of Sports and it came on and it would talk about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat and it would show this skater coming down about to jump and he went off the side of the jump instead of going off the front of the jump and landing way down the hill. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning because there's highs and lows. There's wrestler there on the screen and one's got his arms up in victory and the other's got his head and his hands in defeat. And David has, uh, has his arms up right now in our story. When we think about David, he's been uh, pulled out of the fields and he's been anointed by Samuel as the next king. After the king Saul dies, he's going to become king. He's been anointed that. He's, got, uh, he's defeated the giant last week. Brother Danny talked about uh, Goliath, and he measured from the floor, and he said Goliath would have been right there, nine foot nine inches from the deck that I'm standing on. Even for Mark, that's a big fella. <laughs> Mark's a tall guy, but even you know, facing up against a nine foot nine guy, that would have been a tough deal and David was not as tall as Mark is and so he had faced that giant he beat that giant he'd become best friends with Jonathan in fact that's where we pick up the story Jonathan is the son of the king so he'd become best friends with Jonathan and he was serving in the king's court he was playing the harp things were good for David but the story's about to make a turn. We pick it up here talking with, about Jonathan. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and if you uh, want to follow along, we're going to go through about four chapters of 1 Samuel here. So you can, if you've got a Bible app or a Bible, um, you can see some of these verses actually in the Bible itself. 1 Samuel chapter 18, 3 through 5 says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as, as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even the sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him, set him over the men of war, as this was good in the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So David had, had such success that he's now in charge of the entire army. So the king's army, he has been set, he's been set over the army and he's gone out and he's had all these successful battles. And we find here that Jonathan had made a covenant with David, said he loved David as he loved his own soul. They were best friends. And we'll find that put to the test. So you might look at these pictures of 
you know, a, a warring tribe back then, and David is being is is just winning everything that he he had uh, put his mind to. He'd won all of the battles, but then there's a turning point, and we find that turning point here in First Samuel 18, just a few verses later. As they were coming home, so David's gone out, he's gone to war, he's, he's had great success. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the woman sang to one, the, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. That's an interesting phraseology. I see Christy smiling. Saul eyed David. It means he kept his eye on him. He began to think about David and concentrate on what was going on with David in his kingdom, how all of that was going. He, he got jealous and he put his eye on David from that day on. So this is the turning point. We rolled over the top of the hill of the highs and we're headed down into the valley of the lows for David. In chapter 18, verse number 10, it says, The next day a harmful spirit from God rose, rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. So David came in almost every day and he, he played the lyre. This is their artist's rendition of it. It's like a harp. Um, and he played that every day. But Saul just sitting there. He's had his eye on David. He's thinking these bad thoughts. He's getting jealous of David. It says Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So things are starting to get a little bad. We've rolled down the hill. We're headed down. We're to the point that the king is trying to kill David at this point. And his plot against him uh, further thickens here in Samuel 18 and 21. Saul plans to give his daughter how do you say her name, Michael? Is that Michael? Michael. Michael. Okay, Michael. Cool. I, I looked at that and I could not figure it out. I thought it might be Michael or Michael. But it, we'll call her Michael uh, as a snare to him. So Saul comes up with this plan. He says, you know what I'm going to do? First of all, he thinks about giving another daughter, but then he gives her to somebody else. And then he, ends, he settles on uh, Michael and he says, I'm going to give Saul Micah. Michael. Here was his plan. He knew... He knew David couldn't pay the bride price or the dowry. He knew David was a poor shepherd boy. So what he's going to do is he's going to give uh, David his daughter and his price for her is going to be you go kill a hundred uh, Philistines. So his plan is to get the Philistines at odds with David to the point that they would kill him. That's his plan. And he's going to use his daughter to do that. Well, David accepts that offer. He actually goes out and kills 200 Philistines. And so the Philistines come uh, to war against David. In, in 1 Samuel 18, it says, And the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So his plan backfires. 
David not only is not killed by the Philistines, every time they come out, he whips them back to wherever they came from. He's, he's better and more highly esteemed than all the other uh, uh, commanders in the, in the army. So Saul comes up with some more plans. In chapter 19, it opens with Saul announcing his intent to kill um, David. Jonathan hides David and then goes and talks to Saul to try to talk his dad out of killing his best friend David. Then David wars against the Philistines again and prevails to the point that they run from him. Then same song, second verse. This time David's wife hears the plot. She lowers him out of a window. Then she takes a statue in the house and she puts hair on the statue and puts it in bed and she tells all the court that David's sick. That's why he can't come to, come to visit the king. Goat hair on his head and uh, puts him in bed and tells the servants David's sick. Saul commands that they go bring the bed with David in it to him because he's that intent upon killing David at this point. And when they do, he has to confront Michael. He's like, hey, you told me your husband was sick. He's not even there. What happened? And Michael tells the king that David said he would kill her if, uh, if, he, if she didn't go along with this plot. So she covers her tracks that way. And David goes to Samuel and hides with the prophets. So David's way down now. He's off the, the highs of the highs, and he's at the lows of the lows. He's been, the, uh, the king is trying to kill him in multiple ways, trying to use his wife to kill him, trying to use his best friend to kill him, trying to use the army of the Philistines to kill him. He's trying to use any method he can think of, any scheme he can come up with to kill David. <clears throat> in chapter 20, he continues to try, and I, I didn't put this story, I, I'm not going to tell you, I'm going to summarize the story this way. He and Jonathan come, Jonathan come up with an elaborate, elaborate scheme to figure out whether the dad's still mad or not. It involves archery and it involves, you know, where the archer bear is going to be standing in the field. It's, it's a complicated story, but let's just say that when Jonathan goes to talk to his dad to find out if the king is still mad, he is. And he gets so mad at Jonathan, he calls him, you son of a twisted, rebellious woman. He calls his own son that. <laughs> You son of a twisted, rebellious woman. That might be the good language for what he said. I'm not sure, but that sounds like somebody cleaned up some bad words or something to me. But you son of a twisted, rebellious woman. Not only that, he actually throws the same spear that he tried to kill David with at his own son. So he's mad. He's after David. There's no doubt. Nobody's turning him away from this at this point. He tries to kill Jonathan, his own son. So then Jonathan tells the archer to do what he's archer bear to do what he's supposed to do, which warns David that it's not safe for him in the kingdom. So David flees to Gath. The king, the king of Gath's officers, knows David's reputation. They've heard the song about the thousands and the ten thousands. And then David hears those people talking and he gets worried that the king's going to do something to him so he pretends he's crazy. You might check that out in verse 21 or in chapter 21. He pretends like he's crazy. It's some, there's, some, there's some cool, um, well he just pretends like he's crazy. It's kind of a little funny there as you read those verses. So then in chapter two, 22, David has fleed to the caves. He's, he's by himself. He's in the caves um, of uh, Abdullam. 
Saul finds out that these priests had helped him. So when he fled originally, he fled to the priests. Saul finds out he sends Doag, and Doag kills 85 of the priests trying to find David. So the king is, he's sparing no one or nothing to try to get to David to try to kill him. And so that's where the uh, story for this morning kind of comes to a conclusion. uh, Other folks will carry David's story forward. But the purpose of the sermon is for us to look and to think about these highs and these lows and how we are to address them. No doubt David was going through them. He'd been, you know, living in the palace, living large, you know, best friends with the king's son, and all of that turned as he began to get more and more success. People became jealous of him, and especially the king. And ultimately, he finds himself in the lower of the lows in a in a, a cave in chapter 22 of Samuel. So no doubt, no doubt David had gone through the, the highs and the lows, which begs the question, why do bad things happen to good people? We hear that all the time, don't we? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I don't have time to answer that question. That's just a little side note and a little, um, a little lucky dog extra. I, I will give you my own thoughts real quick. Number one, the, the question itself is asked by David. It said, Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said, and said before Jonathan, What have I done? Why is my, what is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? He said, I'm, I've, done, I've not done anything wrong. I'm a good person. Why is, your, why is your dad trying to kill me? Why am I being persecuted like this? And so it's, uh, it's plagued people for a long time. If you think about the book of Job, that book of Job was primarily written to answer that question. Psalm 73 says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my, my portion forever. So when we think about that question, the answer is we should be in this mindset right here. That it's about God. It's about our heart. And it's not about us. We're not here to gain wealth and knowledge and intellect and friends and all of that. We're here to serve the Lord. Now, there is an inherent flaw with the question. The question says... Why do bad things happen to good people? So let me t- let's talk about good for a minute. Ecclesiastes chapter seven says, "Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does who does good and never sins." So we're in God's sight. None of us are good unless we've been saved by Jesus' blood, and, and and that hides our sins. But none of us are good inherently, so the question itself is flawed. Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. First John says, we, If we say we have no sin, we study this one in our Bible study. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Luke chapter 18 says, And Jesus said unto them, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this concept that we somehow have been so good that we don't deserve anything that's bad to happen to us is, is a flawed question in and of itself and not, and not worthy of a lot of time. There's an additional uh, things to think of. No one is immune. 
First Peter chapter four and verse four says, "With respect to this, they are surprised when they do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you." So we've got people doing bad, and they're surprised when the the Christian folks don't join them. So we've got to look no further than the the life of Jesus. Why do good things, or why do bad things happen to good people? Look what happened to our Savior. And we think we're better than that. We think we deserve for nothing bad to happen to us when look what happened to our Savior. He came to this earth, lived a perfect life, had no sin, and look what happened to him. But we think we're better than that. We deserve that, you know, we don't lose any loved ones or we don't have whatever. I mean, we just, we just, we, we look at this life and we get focused on this life and we think we're better than our own Savior who suffered countlessly more than we will ever suffer. We have to remember the world is not the end. God uses bad things for lasting good. The worst things happen to the best people, and we'll study this a little bit more here. So I just wanted to spend that, whatever that was, four or five minutes just talking about that one question, because as I was putting this sermon together, there was a question that popped into my head, because I've heard it. I'm like, there's, there's got to be some, um, they're, they're just, we just needed to talk about that and put that up there. So this was my summary. Sometimes in our own personal, sometimes it's our own personal sin, other times it's the sins of others. We live in a fallen world and we experience effects of the fall. One of those effects is injustice and seemingly, seemingly, underline that word, seemingly senseless suffering. It seems to us that it's senseless, but it's got a purpose and it's because we live in a fallen world. So, business cycles. Talk a little bit about business for a minute. In business, there's ups and downs. There's highs and lows. You'll see up there on that chart, it's a sine wave, and it's got phase A, phase B, phase C, phase D. Phase A, you're coming out of a recession. Phase B, you're at the top of the world, kind of where David was before this story started. And in phase C, you're slowing down. Your business is slowing down. In phase D, you head into a recession or a depression or some some piece where year over year your business is not growing as fast as it used to. The, the, the interesting thing about these business cycles, and I stole this from ITR, they're an economist that uh, helps us with uh, our construction business. The interesting thing about those phases is in each phase there's a prescription. There's something that you should do. In phase A it says look for acquisitions, increase sales, marketing efforts, ensure that you have the workforce and the capacity. Why? Because you're about to get busy. You're coming out of the recession. In phase B, it says extend the, the rising trend, build brand loyalty, invest your workplace, the best times, it's the best time to sell a company. In phase C, as you roll over, avoid overextending yourself. Cash is king. Avoid commitments to long-term expenses. Don't go sign a 10-year long-term lease if the business is slowing down. That doesn't make any sense. In phase D, cost cutting, cut, cut, cost cutting measures, lead with confidence, share good news. Younger employees have not experienced a recession during their careers and will follow management's lead. Be careful to move it. Be careful to be ready to move into phase A. So is, I, I just want to share that real quick to say there seems to be a solution in business for the highs and the lows. I wonder what the solution in our life would be for highs and lows. Well, we're not going to find that in a business book. We're going to, we're going to have to go back to the book we've been studying. 
But I just thought there was an interesting parallel between the way we think in our business and maybe some of the ways we should think as we're uh, on the highs and the lows. So the Bible warns us about the highs. And and the study that, or the the information that we had that that we were putting these studies, this series together, focused a lot on the lows. But I can tell you, I think the highs are every bit as dangerous, and I can tell you that from personal experience. I was meeting with my, um, uh, I'll say it's a business coach. He's my Vistage chair, and he. we were meeting, we met at 6.30 at a restaurant and had breakfast on Friday morning. He said, we, we went through what's going on in our days and what's going on in our business, and we talked about that, and he said, is there anything else that you need, anything you need from me, any help you need from me? And I said, no, Greg, I'm in a really pretty good place. And he said, well, that's great, that's, that's, that's but that good place can make you think you got there on your own. You remember the story in the New Testament of the guy that had the good crop, right? I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger barns, I, I, me, my, all the personal pronouns. We've gone over that before. I think somebody mentioned it last week. Danny might have in his lesson. And so when you get to the top of the pyramid or the top of the curve and you've got as the... Um, the Bible will say you've got food, you've got house, and you're, you're, you're multiplied all this stuff. You got to be careful. So the highs is you know in King David um, in Second Samuel after he becomes king, he's rolling along pretty good. He gets to the point that he's taking so much pride in what's going on. He's like, let's get a census of the troops. Let's figure out just how big my army is and. Kind of like somebody would, you know, let's go go to the vault and count our money, right? Because that was currency to them, their troops, their power. Joab tries to warn David, but he won't listen. So sometimes when we're at the top, we get blinded to um, the warnings of others. And that happened to David more than once. He also is blinded to the truth when Nathan comes to him about the adultery. Israel paid dearly. They lost 70,000 men in 2 Samuel 24 because God didn't view that like David viewed that. He viewed David as getting a little too prideful, not humble in all of his success. And there's example after example of of, of the Israel nation rising and then getting to think too highly of themselves and and the Lord sending in somebody to take them down a notch. (laughs) We know those stories. So what do we pray for when the job is going good and we're feeling good and the family's successful and we got money in the bank? Or do we pray as much as we should? Right when things are going good, are we still as prayerful as we should? So um, we begin to believe that the success is due to our own intelligence, our own efforts, our own thinking, our own schemes, our own decision-making. And we quit relying on God, and that robs God of his glory. So Deuteronomy sums all of this up. Deuteronomy, way back there. 5,000 years ago they had the answer. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse number 10 says... And you shall eat and be full, and you shall be bl- and you and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that He has given you. Take care. So here's the warning: Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. 
lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery servants and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you water out of the filthy rock you fled in the wilderness you, you were fed in the wilderness with manna and your fathers did not know that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you and do you good in the end beware lest you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gave you power to get wealth and that he may confirm his covenant that he, showed, that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if, you forget, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall, you shall, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So from the highs of the highs, Deuteronomy captures it perfectly here. It says, hey, when you get up there, don't think you got there on your own. You got there because the Lord allowed you to be there. He blessed you. He gave you the things that you have to get there. And when you get there, don't forget him. Don't quit praying to him. Don't give him the honor. Don't, don't stop giving him the honor. You gave him the honor on the climb up. You got to give him the honor when you're standing at the top of the mountain. So to fix, remember that we're a mirror. We're either mirroring God or we're, we're mirroring the devil. Know that God wants, wants, wants. Wants good things for us all. James says every good and perfect gift comes from above. Third John says that thou mayest prosper and be in health. In verse uh, uh, 19 of Philippians chapter 4, it says God will supply. All he wants from us is that we honor him with those blessings or what he wants from us. That's probably not all he wants for us. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of your produce. That your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. <clears throat> so what happens when things are going bad? What happens when we're in the, where, where David is in our story today? He's in a cave. He's been being pursued by the king, by the king and his army. Priests have been killed. The world's being turned upside down to find him. <clears throat> Romans chapter three, uh, verse, uh, chapter five, verse three says, "Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope." So, what we know about being in um, being at the bottom of that curve is that um, it will strengthen us. What's the old saying? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger? That's a little um, straight to the point. But the point is we all can get through things. And when we get through things, we have a certain ability on the back side of that. And that ability is we've been through something. And there's a lot we can do with that. It tells us here that we produce our character and we produce endurance. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. 
this is a infinitely short period of time in our existence. It's hard for us to understand. We can't understand infinity. I did a sermon one time where I sent a pigeon to Pluto and, you know, sitting around and around and around just to define some period of time, and that's zero in infinity. In, in, in infinity. Infinity is beyond us. But this is zero time in, a, in our existence. Our life here on this earth, I don't care if you're here 10 minutes or 100 years, mathematically it's zero in the time that you will be in existence. So when it says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time don't have anything to do with the glory that's going to be revealed, it, it just means exactly that. What, what we're suffering here is nothing, zero time, in comparison to how long we're going to be somewhere, hopefully, with the Lord. And so we have to get our mind wrapped around what the earth means to us. I've used this many times, but Brother Dusty will often pray, Lord, hasten your coming. Or Lord, we can't wait for your coming. And I'm like, hmm, I mean, I've got some things to do. <laughs> I've got a business plan. I've got stuff going on. You know, I don't really, I'm not really in for him coming this afternoon. But we should be. That's where we have to get to. We have to get to the fact that whatever I've got planned here is nothing compared to what's coming if I've lived my life the right way. When we get there, the suffering, the lows, they, they don't affect us. If we're under in a tent underneath the bridge in downtown Dallas, it doesn't mean anything. If we're in a million dollar home, it doesn't mean anything. If we're not focused on the Lord and we don't get to that goal, that's the goal. Matthew chapter 5 says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So the good people and the bad people get the blessings. They get the rain. First John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So back to that same point about getting hooked up on what is going on here and how much this means to us. That's what we know about bad. I think the fix is that we seek truth in the Scriptures, that we confess our unbelief. And this one's strong. So when you're, when you're thinking things that you, you know aren't right, you need to find a partner. You need to find somebody that you can talk to. You need to find somebody that will help you see the fact that that is an unbelief and that you need to be stronger in that area, and here's how. So think about your elders and your deacons and your other brothers and sisters. Remember God and spend time with Him in prayer. This is vital. I think it's probably the most one of the most important points. So think about when you were in high school, I don't know if you were an outgoing extroverted person, you probably had 25 or 30 or maybe even 40 friends. I'm, oof, 
how many years out of high school? A bunch, 40 or 50. I've got one friend that I now keep up with at all, and even that's very loose. So think about that in your prayer life. Whether you're at the high or you're at the low, how much are you talking to your best friend? How much time are you spending talking to God? You can't have a relationship with somebody you never talk to. Now, I'd still believe that one best friend that I've got would stop whatever he's doing and come to my aid, and I would to his, even though we haven't talked for a while. We see each other every year, usually at an Aggie game in College Station. He's a police for the A&M team. But that's not, you know, I've got closer, I've got people that I communicate with more today. They're not my close friends. But my point is, we've got to have some communication with God. If we're going to count him our Savior, if we're going to count him our best friend, if we're going to count him for the, and give him the glory for the things that he has given us, and ask for his help when things aren't going good. Make a grateful list. We've talked about that many times. Romans chapter 8 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So we, we use that a lot to say that, again, this world is not important. God wants us to be plentiful and wants us to have things in this world but he wants us to glorify him with those things and to give him the glory for getting those things. And to realize that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. What that means is life is this much, heaven is this much, and this is what you want. And it's going to be good. It's going to be perfect. And so all things work together for good to them that love God and love his appearing. So in the highs and lows, trust God. Remember that all things work for good. Use the resources that are available to you. Christian friends, the scriptures, fasting. Focus on the positive. Have honest conversations with God. And maybe that will help us in the highs and the lows become someone that is a person after God's own heart. Because that's what he wants for us. In the highs and the lows, he wants us to, he wants us to be relying on him and focused on him. Give him the glory in the highs and asking for his help in the lows. That's what he wants. He wants a relationship with us. That no matter where we are on the sine wave of life, highs or lows, we're with him. That's the uh, lesson of the morning. Uh, we're going to sing number 923. There's a great day coming. Very apropos for the lesson this morning. There is a great day coming. The Lord's going to come back and He's going to take those Christians with Him and we're going to rise up in the air. The Bible says we're going to, we're going to become like Him. I think we'll study that uh, Wednesday night at the Bible study. First John chapter 3 says that when Jesus comes, we'll be made like Him. And it also tells you what that means in First John chapter 3. So come be a part of the Bible study on Wednesday night and you'll find that out. little teaser. Um, so there's a great day coming. Jesus is going to come back someday. He's going to come back for us that have, have lived the life we, uh, we, that we should in his eyes. So stand and let's sing. There's a great day coming.